Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. As Sigmund Freud's theories and therapeutic methods spread across the globe in the early 20th century, practitioners were intrigued about how psychoanalytic ideas could be translated and applied in different cultural contexts. Their musings and observations contributed significantly to the development of psychoanalytic theory and practice as they challenged some of Freud's core concepts and helped broaden psychiatric thinking about the role of race, culture, and personality in mental health care. Our guest today is Howard Jung, Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Davis, where his research involves the historical and conceptual foundations of the human sciences, especially psychoanalysis, cultural psychiatry, and racial science. As a fellow this year, Howard has been working on a new book, tentatively titled, A Transcultural Revolution of the Unconscious, Psychoanalysis and Chinese Culture Across the Pacific. Welcome, Howard. Thank you for having me. Howard, how did you come to this topic? It's a, it's a long story. You know, I think this actually goes back to my PhD research. When I was thinking about a dissertation topic, I was kind of deciding between the history of sex change and the history of psychoanalysis. I didn't think that I would have any sources to rely on for the history of psychoanalysis. So I gave up on that topic very early on and instead um, wrote the dissertation that became the basis of the book after Unix. I think it was only later when I discovered the papers of a key protagonist in my project. His name is Bingham Dai. That I thought, okay, there's something here. And building on that body of sources, I began to conceptualize a larger kind of book project, you know, around that body of sources. And I felt that, oh, so it is a topic that I can return to after 15 years or so. So this has been a, quite a journey. Another factor was also that when I was doing the research for After Unix, I discovered that the same sexologist that I was looking at were translating ideas of Freud and introduce Freudian ideas to Chinese readers. Um, so that also got me kind of interested in thinking about, well, so if there's that interest in the early 20th century, how can one think about the history of Chinese psychoanalysis? Um, and finally, I think uh, in the historiography of psychoanalysis, there hasn't been a lot of attention paid to China and Chinese history and vice versa. Uh, Chinese historians have not really talked about psychoanalysis. But, you know, in the last few years, there has been a very robust body of uh, scholarship that looks at the non-Western and colonial origins of the history of psychoanalysis. Um, you know, this goes back to Freud's own ideas, his ideas about the unconscious, uh, female sexuality as like a dark frontier, definitely that you have totem, taboo, and civilization. All of that was already situated in, you know, this expansionist notion of European empires. But also there's a global history to this as well, like in the Arab world or in different parts of Latin America. 
South Africa, and of course, Eastern Europe. Um, there has been a thriving literature about how psychoanalysis developed in these places. In Asia, there were two societies in Japan and one in India in the early 20th century. So I was just kind of curious why China got left out of this wave of revisionism. And that was another kind of motivating factor for me to come to this project. Your topic is about crossings, about crossing fields, crossing cultures, crossing oceans as well. Why is mobility so important to your work in history and in this project in particular? I think mobility is important uh, mainly because as historians, we tend to think in very kind of static regional and national-based frameworks. So, for example, I'm trained as a historian of China. And in, in my field, we don't really think about uh, what happened to Chinese diaspora subjects, for example, who decided to leave China and thrive outside of China. And vice versa, we tend to have a very kind of pure notion about how knowledge travels from, let's say, the modern West to China uh, in the history of science and medicine. So I think mobility is important because it then allows, it forces us to actually pay attention to some of the protagonists that I look at in the project because only through that lens can we start to understand uh, why they're important. And through their significance, then I think we can reevaluate some of our underlying assumptions in the historiography of science, medicine, but also the history of modern China in East Asia more broadly. You mentioned Bingham Dai. Who else is a key figure for you in this story? In one of the chapters, uh, I look at two key psychiatrists in Taiwan. So this was in the 1940s and 1950s. Their names are uh, Lin Xian and Lin Zongyi. So they were kind of like pioneer psychiatrists. They basically uh, single-handedly established the field of psychiatry in Taiwan. Uh, they're both trained in Japan. Um, so they have that colonial education background. But in the 40s and 50s, they were really at the forefront at making the National Taiwan University Hospital a center for developing a psychiatry in Taiwan. And again, you know, their background is similar to Bingham Dai, in which throughout their life, they kind of travel to different places. They got education to different places, and they were interested increasingly on the cultural context and background of mental health and mental disease. So it's interesting traffic because they're Han Chinese, but they had this background in Japanese colonial education. And now when they're trying to establish this field in post-war Taiwan, they're dealing with a different set of issues that coincided with the rise of U.S. imperialism, but also at the same time, the nationalist government's retreat to Taiwan created a lot of ethnic tensions. So their work has been fascinating for me because not only were they looking at these ethnic problems, conflict in Taiwan, but they also began to like look at indigenous communities and they ranked these Austronesian tribes by the degree of their Han culturation. So it's really interesting that, you know, in addition to Bingham Dai, there are people like Lin Zongyi and Lin Xian who are also interested in the transcultural underpinnings of uh, mental health. There's also other people such as Paul Men Yap, who 
was based in Hong Kong, but also Wei Yaling, who were based in Singapore, that, you know, by the 60s, they would come together to propose this idea of cultural bound syndrome. And this got later classified in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Um, so this became a very important thing in the second half of the 20th century. So these are some of the other uh, major actors that I hope to talk about in the book. Howard, you have just beautifully and fluidly transitioned from talking about Freud's ideas and psychoanalysis, psychoanalytical theory on a broad uh, history of ideas level to mentioning the DSM and the kind of applied way that these ideas might have actually played out in treatment. Have you had any difficulty with that transition in your work? Are you more interested in the former than the latter, for example? Or how have you handled that combination of ideas about and practical application of? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think even if we go back to DICE uh, intervention, there are some uh, studies that look at psychoanalysis, especially as it was appropriated in Chinese literature in the first half of the 20th century, and then especially the 20s and 30s. That's when Freud's ideas really thrived in China, especially in literature. But I think if you look at Dai's work, so he got his PhD at the University of Chicago in 1937, but he was already working at uh, Peking Union Medical College. He was hired to uh, work as a psychotherapist in Beijing. And there, that's when you see a very distinct you know, implementation of Freudian psychoanalysis in northern China. So, you know, from the very beginning, right, Dai's career and work was already bringing me to an account of psychoanalytic history that focuses on its clinical application. So he would, for example, do dream analysis. He would do free association with his patients in Beijing. Um, I think that is actually quite interesting, right, to set this project apart from other more literary approaches to psychoanalysis. There's actually a clinical dimension here. So I think in Dai's work, this was a fairly important part of his contribution. And so if we look at this history through these cases and through the clinical implementation of psychoanalysis, I think it makes the social history of medicine a very easy bridge between the history of ideas and the history of practice. So Lin Xian and Lin Zhongyi, for example, also look at their patient records. And you see that, you know, both of them use these uh, heavily uh, psychoanalytic ideas to talk about patients' trauma, traumatic experience, both with war, but also ethnic conflicts, so on and so forth. Um, and also by the time you get to the 50s and 60s, uh, when you talk about certain culture-bound syndromes, especially Lin Xian, he was also proposing a very psychodynamic way of understanding uh, some of these culture-bound syndromes. One of the most important uh, examples that he looked at was uh, something called coral. And this is one's um, belief that one's genital has actually retracted into the body or disappeared altogether. And uh, some European psychiatrists have already claimed that this was a very biological manifestation of Freud's idea of castration and anxiety. And so there is a genealogy coming from Freudian psychoanalysis that continues to inform these transcultural discussions by the 60s and 70s. And, you know, my point is that today it's actually impossible for us to ignore the importance of race and culture when we talk about um, the history of mental health. 
You mentioned patient records, and I wondered if there were other sources or insights that were particularly surprising, exciting, or inspiring for you as you pursued this project. Yes. So Dai, even though he left China uh, by 1940 because of the war with Japan, um, he actually settled down at Duke University. So he retired from the Duke Medical Faculty, but he was actually invited or asked to go back to China in 1944, 1945-ish, to conduct a series of psychological tests for the Chinese army. Uh, so he did this with a Harvard psychologist by the name of Henry Murray. Murray invented a projective test called the thematic apperception test. And what they would do is they would show you a series of images and you have to tell stories about them. So this was actually very inspiring for me because I think that was actually the first time that Murray even considered that there's some cross-cultural application to the projective test that he developed. By the 60s and 70s, uh, Western social scientists also used similar projective tests to talk about Chinese political culture. It went from like national character to political culture. Um, so I discovered a body of sources in which uh, Western social scientists were using these projective tests on people who have fled uh, mainland China to Hong Kong and Taiwan, and they would talk about their experience. Um, so this include uh, studies of thematic apperception test, but also something else known as the Rorschach test, in which they'll show you a very abstract image, and you'll have to tell the psychologist what you see. So these were very fascinating because they're trying to capture something on the unconscious level through something very explicit. And uh, supposedly, there's some cross-cultural component to these tests. So this was very fascinating to me. Howard, I'm just imagining a researcher interpreting the interpretation of an inkblot, for example. How much of, of what you're reading makes you think about the stories that these researchers are telling about themselves? I guess what I'm asking is, on the one hand, they're attempting, in some cases, to perform therapy. In other cases, as in this one, to understand the perceptions of their subject. But in reading their work, you must also be thinking about what this really says about them as people. How do you handle that in your writing, this level of you as, an, as a researcher, researching researchers who are using their tools on others? Yeah, so I think on some level... When we're reading these sources, we just have to be very clear about what our objective is, right? So there's a way in which I can talk about patient experience from the medical cases and patient records because, you know, that's what social historians of medicine have been trying to do is to grow a bottom-up approach to think about the social experience of the clinic in addition to the viewpoint of the doctor. So there's a way I can try to capture that. And I also problematize, right, the relationship between the doctor, the therapist, and the patient. It's not as if what they say are just automatically intuitive or straightforward. Uh, if you do a very you know, deep psychoanalytic reading of some of these cases, I do think that they also say something about the therapist in question. So for example, I, I make a comment about how there's no way we can think about Dai's relationship to psychoanalysis 
without taking into account his attitude towards Japanese. You know, from his very early moment of encountering with neo-Freudian ideas, to the later ways in which he implemented these ideas and helped. His patients. It was very clear that his attitude toward the Japanese was actually intertwined with his theories, and his clinical approaches. So, I mean, he's not going to say that <laughs> in the sources, but I do think that that's something that we as researchers may able to extrapolate on a level kind of beyond what the sources themselves say at face value. Um, so, I think just if we go to the sources with a very clear mindset of what are Goal is, I think there's a way we can unpack these different levels of the messages being conveyed through the sources. I think that the historical context also mattered. You know, when I talk about the psychological test, the cross-cultural administration of cross-cultural tests, that happened in the Cold War era. Okay, so I knew that they were going after、uh, something very broad and very general about. Chinese political culture, right? So this is actually something that wasn't there before the Cold War era, and so I think keeping that contextualization in mind, I was pretty clear that whatever the results of the test said, they said as much about the researchers' ambition as it is actually just about the testing subjects.、Um, so I think that context. Was also very instrumental as I gauge through the different layers of meanings embedded in the sources themselves. You've reminded me of one of the things I most admire about humanities scholars who work in medical or social science topics, which is that by examining this history, we can offer something to those practices today that perhaps social scientists or medical、uh, researchers are not aware of on their own. There's a, a tremendous value. To humanities scholarship, I think in those fields that may be invisible、um, to some of those scholars. Yes, absolutely, and especially you know in today's world, I talked about, for example, how DSM incorporated the notion of culture bound syndrome in 1990s.、Um, the latest version that just got completely dropped from the DSM. Now they have a.、Uh, Cultural formulation test, and you'll see in the latest version that cultural competence came to play such an important role, right? So, in some ways, these days, if you don't look at the racial, cultural, or other demographic variables or backgrounds of the patient in question, it's actually very difficult to actually come to a useful. Assessment of what the mental health condition might be of the patient, and so if we just look at the most recent DSM, we might think that oh, this is so natural. It's it's of course we have to look at the racial cultural background, but in fact, historically speaking, that hasn't been the case. And what I discovered was that the push for this. Actually, came from some of these experts、uh, situated in the Asia Pacific, as opposed to experts who are typically considered to sit at the center of Western biomedicine. It's this kind of force coming from the margin that redefines what gets spoken about and what gets incorporated at the center of mental health discourse. So, I think that provides a very useful kind of historical perspective on how we got to. Where we are, I think that is so crucial. Howard, you've been at the National Humanities Center this year working on this project. How has your time at the center changed, or shaped, or reinforced ideas you already had? 
Well, first of all, I must say that this is a very instrumental year for me because during the COVID pandemic times, all of the archives were closed. And as the archives、uh, slowly opened up in this year, I was able to use my time here to visit、uh, much of the remaining archives that I needed to visit for the project. So that has been very、uh, transformative. When I collect new sources, that actually allowed me to、uh, rethink some of the questions that I wanted to pose about the project. So that has been very important. I was also able to go back to the dye papers for a second time to discover. New stuff. I didn't know that they were not there the first time I was there.、Um, this has a some backstory, but that was very useful to to see new pictures and new sources. Because of the proximity, I was also very fortunate to actually、uh, have met the daughter of Dai,、uh, Meiling Dai, who's still alive, and shared with me many valuable stories about. Her dad, and you know, as a historian, that is just <laughs> one of the best moments in life. <laughs>、um, so, in terms of research, those are some key moments in my research experience、uh, this year. I think one of the most important part, though, being here at the center, is that without teaching and administrative duties disruption, I have been able to kind of sit down with. The sources, both old and new, and to think about well, to read them through very carefully. You know, sometimes with teaching administrative duties, that's not always possible. But being able to do that and to see if there are any、uh, new insights that I can gain from looking at the sources I collected for the project, and in fact,、um, this was very important for my thinking on, for example, the. Han Indonesian relations that I mentioned earlier、uh, this year has been very instrumental for me to think about well how does race and comparative racialization work in the Asia Pacific context? You know, Asianists have a very poor way of talking about matters of race and race relations, and this has forced me to confront that problem and to think about ways where I might be able to contribute to that discussion. I have also discovered new stuff about Dice Intellectual Project. I'm now very confident on my position on the way he blends Confucianism and Freudianism. This was not something that I had been able to do before I came here, but with the luxury of the time and the space being here, these are some of the intellectual transformations that I've experienced. Thank you, Howard, for an enlightening conversation. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center. <laughs>